Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time, for the opportunity to gather here today on Resurrection Sunday to study and meditate on your word. We ask you to send the Holy Spirit to ultimately lead us and guide us into a fuller understanding and to a fuller comprehension of your word that we may not only know it with our minds, but live it and breathe it with our hearts. Help us, precious Lord, for without your help, we are helpless. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning we'll be dissecting Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And that text says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul begins the epistle to the Romans by identifying himself, Paul. The next thing that he says, he tells us what he is. And the first thing that he tells us is that he is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now, last week I referred to the fact that Paul calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus because the word that in English is translated bondservant comes from a root in Greek. That word is doulos. And the most appropriate definition of the word doulos is slave. Now, I'm not blind. I'm not ignorant. We live in the 21st century West. And when anyone says slave, red flags go off. It's, a, it's, it's another dirty S word. People don't like that word because it denotes something very, very negative. But it's a word that we find in the Bible. And if we're honest to the text, the Greek word doulos means slave. Now, we use words to communicate ideas. Words matter. Ideas matter. So I'm going to break down and really reemphasize this term doulos, this term slave, so we can reclaim the biblical concept of what this word doulos actually means. Because ultimately, society at large, they may have a particular idea of what the word slave means, but we're going to, claim, we're going to take it back. We're going to reclaim it because society at large, how they use a word, ultimately, that is not our master. So Paul, being a very intelligent man, specifically uses the word doulos to refer to himself. The word doulos refers to a slave who's been purchased. In other words, a price has been paid to procure, to secure that person, a doulos, in service to a master. There's another word in Greek. That word is diakonos. That word refers to someone who is free, who can freely choose 
to serve master A, B, or C, but a doulos refers to someone who does not have any rights of their own. And that's important because when we understand who we are in Christ, we are not free to serve Christ on Monday and then free to serve ourselves or someone else on Tuesday. We are a doulos or have been purchased to serve our Lord and our Master. Now, when I say we have been purchased to be a doulos or a slave to Christ, how were we purchased? What price did God pay to purchase us? Exactly. God paid the, the, the price of his own life, whereby the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, that was the ransom price, that was the payment that he put down in order to procure us. So a doulos is an individual who belongs to an owner and who has no ownership rights of their own because a doulos suggests one who is purchased. So when we ask ourselves, what am I? When we ask ourselves, what is a Christian? When we ask ourselves, what defines the contours of the relationship between a creature and his or her creator, it is that we are a doulos in the service of our master. And the concept of a slave is relational, meaning you always have a slave and then you have a slave master. Who is our slave master? Christ Jesus, which already changes everything because we are now serving a master who died for us. So this relationship now is not abusive. This relationship is not tyrannical. And because of the relationship we are now in, our gracious Lord redefines how that relationship plays out in everyday reality. Our master is called kurios, or Lord. That's why we, Paul, as are we, are bondservants of Christ Jesus. And let us not forget that as Paul defines who he is in the beginning of the epistle to the Romans, understanding who we are in Christ defines how we live, and that initiates the start of our Christian lives. Because once you realize you are a doulos to your Lord, that's actually when your Christian life begins. People who are free to serve whomever and whatever they please are not really douloi to our precious Lord. As it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, Do you not know that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? So just as Paul begins Romans with an identity statement, our Christian lives begin with a biblical understanding of who we really are. And because God paid such a high price to purchase his children so that we are now doulos of Christ, that now means God will never give us up because the price that he paid was so high. As it says in Isaiah 43.1, God speaks to his people and basically tells the Israelites, is telling us, do you not know that you are mine? And God actually uses the language of saying, I have ransomed you. And because he has ransomed us with his own life, he shall never let us 
go. So what is Paul? What is a Christian? Who are we? We are a doulos of Christ Jesus. And getting this idea is critically important because if someone were to think they were free to choose Christ, if they were free to enter into the service of Christ Jesus, then who's not to say they can unchoose Jesus? Who's not to say that they can now make the choice to turn away from and to serve someone else? And on top of that, if we were to get the idea of being a doulos of God wrong and think we're free to serve someone else, what that actually means in reality is we don't think God is sovereign. Because once we understand God is Lord of everything, he's sovereign over everything, he is king, he is Lord, that really means he's sovereign, that really means he's king, that means you are not free to choose someone or something else that is neither Lord or sovereign. Now, in the world in which Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Empire, at the time, there were approximately three million slaves who were forced into slavery, and they were regarded as essentially property. They were regarded as less than individuals who were used and abused. But when we are saved by God's grace, we're not forced into it, are we? God doesn't pull anyone into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming because salvation now is a gift. Salvation now is a benefit that we, are, that we are blessed with as a function of God's grace, as a function of his unmerited favor. Now we are slaves in a relationship with not a tyrannical slave master, but a loving, gracious Lord. Now we are enslaved to eternal life. Now we are enslaved to liberty. Now we are enslaved to peace. Now we are enslaved to joy. And this is a crucial thing to remember, talking about reclaiming the word slave and reclaiming the idea of being a doulos in Christ Jesus. A human slave master actually needs a slave. If you are a human slave master, you need a slave to do stuff, to work the land, to clean your house, to do odds and ends, things like that. But does God actually need anything? He doesn't. Which means, he tells us back in Isaiah 43, you are my people, you are mine, I have ransomed you. Now he bestows upon us the free gift, and in that gift, we are now a doulos in a relationship with God, knowing God didn't need to call anybody to a relationship with him. And now we reap the benefits of being a servant of God. Because as Martin Luther once said, being a slave to God is where true freedom lies. Now we have a royal liberty to actually serve our precious Lord. Now we're going to take this whole idea of being a slave one step further. Because as I said, I want to reclaim the biblical word and reclaim the biblical idea of being in a, a slave-master relationship with our Lord. People find the idea of being called a slave offensive. However, 
I dare say that everyone is a slave to something. Everyone is a slave to something. In the epistle to uh, Timothy, the apostle Paul writes that because of sin, people are held captive by the forces of darkness. In other words, they're enslaved to sin. Where they may have the freedom to choose, they may have option A, B, and C, but guess what? All of those options are sinful. They're not free to respond to God because they are enslaved to sin. People are enslaved to public opinion. They're enslaved to tradition. They're enslaved to convenience. They're enslaved to keeping things the way they are. Many people are even enslaved to their own ignorance, but don't actually realize they are ignorant. As a medical doctor who's been practicing now for more than a decade, there is not one day, not one day in my practice, not one, where someone walks in and basically says, Dr. Sadafel, this is what I have. And I'll say, whoa, that's a pretty bold leap. Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, how did you arrive at the conclusion that you have this? Because you're, you're coming in here giving me a diagnosis. How can these things be? Please explain. And they will invariably say, I Googled it. I typed in my symptoms online, and this is what I have. I'm going about to die in two weeks. I need A, B, and C. Write it for me right now. And sometimes I'm funny. Sometimes I'm funny, so I'll usually say, I have one question. Did Google go to medical school? And the answer is always no. But here's the real-life example I'm proving, right? This is not to demean or criticize someone. If you are someone who is in bondage to a particular way of thinking, you can actually think that having a very closed, finite view of reality that dismisses objective facts and medical expertise and a grandiose world of knowledge, if you live in a teeny tiny corner of the world and then make lifestyle choices based upon a limited amount of knowledge, you are now enslaved to what you do not know. And that slavery actually closes your eyes and closes your ears from real truth that seeks to help you. Now we can take that medical analogy and draw the spiritual truths behind it. If someone doesn't know that God really is a loving, caring, saving God who wants you to live and wants to set you free, but they instead think something else that they Googled about God or something else their friend told them, they will now be in bondage to that ignorance and be unavailable to receive the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And I say all of that to make the point, the word slave is not offensive because everyone is a slave to something. I'm a grown adult man, and there are some nights when I cannot have the bed to myself. Why? Because my 14-month-old refuses to stay in his crib. I am a slave sometimes to a 28-pound toddler. Everyone 
is a slave to something. So, Paul says he's a doulos, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, and everything he now subsequently writes in the epistle to the Romans comes from that identity. So Paul is not telling the Romans, these are my ideas, these are my speculations. He comes from the posture saying, everything I'm now going to write to you comes from the core of being done in service to our precious Lord. And if the Apostle Paul is a slave to God, that means he's not a slave to men. He's not a slave to public opinion. And that is radically, crucially important to understand because the Apostle Paul had a tough, tough life where no one wanted to listen to him. With the exception of the Philippian, the church at Philippi overall, every letter he's basically telling church folks, guys, this is right, this is wrong. This is what the Word of God says. And people simply brushed the Apostle Paul off. But because he was a slave of God, lived and breathed and, and taught and preached the truth, then he could fulfill his ministry. So Paul is a doulos of Christ Jesus. We know who Paul is, but who is Christ? We're going to dive into the person of Christ Jesus in a couple verses later on, but the simplest thing to know now is that Jesus is not only our Savior, but he's also our Lord. And a slave of Christ Jesus is free to serve him and is also free to preach the gospel as the Apostle Paul is about to do in this entire epistle. The second thing Paul says is that he's called as an apostle. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, number two, called as an apostle. Called and apostle go together because if Paul wasn't called, then he would not have been an apostle. Now, called comes from a root in Greek. Can anyone tell me what, in general, the, the, the biblical word called means? What does it mean in real life? If God calls you, what does that mean? Because it's not saying, God saying, hey, you over there. It's not that. It's something different. So what does called mean? To be used of? Prepared him. It basically means choosing someone, right? It just means when God calls someone, that means he chooses or he appoints someone to a particular service. And this is important because Paul did not volunteer. Paul did not self-appoint himself to be an apostle. He was called to be an apostle by God himself. This is what God says to Ananias in Acts 9.15, speaking of Paul. Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's Acts 9.15. So calling in general in the Bible refers to God choosing someone or appointing someone. Now, when we take a step back and analyze the term calling in general in the Bible, it's a very broad term. When Paul uses the word called... He's referring to the effective 
or the effectual call. And that's in contrast to the general call. Now, can anyone explain to me the difference between an effective or an effectual call and a general call? You're very close. So an effectual call is, a, is effective. Why is it effective? It's effective because it's a call that's made by God himself. God's word never returns to him void. So if God calls you, no one can say no. So the effectual call means God calls not so much with an audible voice, but he causes a turning of hearts and now compels and animates someone to do a particular service. Again, in the life of the Apostle Paul, he used to be Saul, someone who worked against Christ, killing Christians. Then God calls him, and what now happens is the Holy Spirit causes a work to happen in his heart. Now he's no longer doing the things he used to do and is called and is effectually turned to now operate in service to his precious Lord. So, effectual calling is an act of God where God summons a person to himself and that summoning also enables them to respond in saving faith. And typically the means of calling or the natural route by which God uses to call someone is the word of God. Because as Roman 10 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The effective call is entirely an act of God. That's why it's effective. To give you an example, in Acts 16:14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What was Paul speaking? The word of God. God now uses that as the means by which he turns her heart, he calls her, and now enables her to respond to the word of God in faith. Effectual or effective calling is personal, internal, and always effective. This is why the church are called God's elect. Elect refers to people who are called or those who are called out. All members of God's true church or the ecclesia are those whom God has called out from the world at large. So now, if that's what the effectual call is, what's the general call? If the effectual call is personal, it's a contrast, right? If the effectual call is personal, internal, and effective, what's now a general call? Exactly. A general call is what I can do every Sunday. Right? If there are 20 new people in the church, I can say, Christ died for your sins. He was crucified on a cross and raised from the dead. All those who profess in Jesus Christ will be saved. That's a general call made by a human being, which is public, which may hit the back of your natural ears, but not go down in your heart. Meaning my words are, may or may not be effective, not as a function of me, but as a function of God using those words to call someone. So the call that's 
um, literally made by an individual is general, it's public, it, it's external, and it may not be effective. But God can now use that word in order to effectually call someone. God's calling actually confers ability to the person once called, so the call itself is effectual. As I spoke at a prayer meeting a couple of Tuesdays ago, when Jesus found his friend Lazarus in the tomb, Lazarus was dead. He had been dead for four days. And what did Jesus do? He called to him and said, Lazarus, come forth. And the question I asked at the time was, how can a dead person respond to anything? Because a dead person doesn't have the ability to do anything because they're dead. But when God's effectual call goes out, in the call itself, in the word of God, that call has power. Remember, God is the God when nothing existed. He said, let there be light. What happens? Light. Because he's God. And his call, his word, has the power to do that. Hence, the effectual call is always effective. To piggyback on what Chad said earlier, even more specific in that, so you have a general call, effectual call, but God can then call specific individuals to specific services or offices in the church. You and I are not apostles. The Apostle Paul was because he was called to be an apostle. Some further examples. People are called into particular ministries in the, in the church, like teaching, evangelism, missions. Moses was called to be a mediator, Exodus 3-4. The judges were called to be judges, Judges 3-9. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, Jeremiah 1-5. And, and the apostles were called to be apostles, Matthew 4-21. And whenever God calls someone into a specific vocation or office, God always implants within their hearts a desire to do it. No one, any, any individual called by God to preach and teach the word of God never does it against his will. Because... God puts the desire in their heart. If you go on the missions fields and see evangelists and they're in the middle of the jungle using the bathroom in the bushes and people are calling them dirty names and they have no money and they're being beaten up every day and we say, hey, so-and-so, why are you doing this? They'll say, I can't stop. They'll say, I have the desire in my heart to do it. I can honestly testify you right now. If someone told me in 10 minutes I can never preach or teach again, I would crumble. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I would have to preach to my 14-month-old every single day because the desire is there. You have to get it out. The point is that when God calls, he never does it against your will. He puts the yearning. He puts the fire. He puts the, the drive in your heart to do it no matter what, like the Apostle Paul. Okay, our time is spent. Are there any questions? Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for your presence and your word as always and entreat you, Divine Spirit, 
to allow this word to be nourished and treasured in our minds and hearts, that we may discern and appropriate this truth in our everyday lives, that we will not only have an intellectual comprehension of it, but also be able to clearly and effectually communicate your truth to all those whom we encounter, seeking, Lord Jesus, the glory and splendor of your face. We thank you, precious Lord, for the gathering of saints, and thank you especially for this special Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.